Great. So um, I just want to welcome our panelists and everybody in the audience. Thank you for thank you for being this afternoon here with us in our second seminar of the Future of Longevity series. We are very honored to host uh, some of the brightest minds working on reversing aging and accelerating lifespans. During this discussion, we will learn about how they're approaching longevity, and we're going to learn more from the scientists, um, innovators, and investors themselves. Um, we're going to do some quick intros and then introduce our panelists, as well as uh, reiterate the house rules for the, the discussion. Um, I'm going to start with myself. My name is Laura, Laura Minkini, and I'm the founder of Mikey Guy, a vetted curated platform promoting longevity as a lifestyle experience. Having spent my early career in trend forecasting and branding and design, I see the potential of longevity becoming the next big direct-to-consumer category, empowering people to practice preventative health. I'm always looking for new companies going direct-to-consumer, and my DMs are always open, and I'm very happy to be here with two of my friends and experts in the longevity space, Avi Roy and Nathan Chang. I'll let them introduce themselves. Thank you, Laura. Um... And hello, everyone. My name is Avi. I'm a biomedical scientist and entrepreneur based in Oxford. I advise and fund startups in health and longevity space in North America, EU, and India. I also work with governments to define uh, and develop policies that will enable the longevity infrastructure. Besides the always enthusiastic Laura, I'm also joined by the erudite and very entrepreneurial Nathan, as the moderator for this panel. Nathan, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Avi. Um, so uh, my name is Nathan Chang. Uh, I'm the founder of the Mar uh, Longevity Market Cap newsletter uh, and also a website called Longevity List, where you can find jobs, uh, companies, and investors in uh, longevity biotech. Um, but uh, more importantly, uh, I'm also the uh, program director of the On Deck Longevity Biotech Fellowship. It's uh, basically a program where people who want to you know, come build companies or, or join, um, you know, startups in the longevity biotech space. Uh, we just get them all together in this uh, really cool community, um, some of which, some of the me uh, members of which are, are here on this panel. And uh, yeah, we're just uh, gathering people who, who want to do something about uh, aging and uh, create amazing companies. So uh, if you're interested in, you know, doing something about aging, definitely apply to our program if you're interested uh the website is beyonddeck.com you can find us there um yeah i guess I'll, I'll hand it back to laura thanks nathan um so i'm going to do a quick introduction of each one of our guests uh starting uh, from left to right in order uh from top to bottom i'll start with uh, jay olshansky he is currently a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Illinois and Chicago, research associate at the Center of Aging at the University of Chicago, and co-founder of Chief Scientist at Lapetus Solutions. Next is Nir Barsalai. Nir is the director of the Institute for Aging and Research at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and the director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for the Biology of Human Aging Research and the National Institute of Health's Nathan Schock Centers of Excellence in the Basic Biology of Aging. Next, Alejandro Campo. Alejandro is assistant professor of the University of Lausanne. His research areas include epigenetics, stem cells, aging and mitochondrial diseases, with the goal of clarifying diseases mechanism and developing novel therapeutic approaches to improve the quality of life of patients. 
Um, next is Kristen Fortney. Kristen is the CEO and co-founder of BioH, a clinical stage biotechnology company on a mission to develop a broad pipeline of the therapies that target aging in order to increase health span and address chronic diseases. George Church is the Robert Winthrop Professor of Genetics at the Harvard Medical School, Professor of Health Sciences and Technology at Harvard and MIT, and founding member of the WIS Weiss Institute for Biological Inspired Engineering. And Jim Mellon is here on stage with us now. He is the co-founder and chairman of Juvenescence, a company which aims to develop science-backed therapies that extend both health span and lifespan. Jim has established the Mellon Longevity Center at Oxford. Welcome to all our panelists again, and thank you for being here. Yeah, so just a quick uh, note. So this will be a FYI. Um, uh, or well, actually not an FIA, but but this will be a rapid fire lightning round so that everybody can you know chime in. And the question is really simple: um, How do you plan to reverse aging um, in your own ways? And this is a question uh, for each one. And maybe we can go ladies first. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Kristen, if you want to uh, start it off, um, how do you, um, your efforts, your company, how do you guys uh, plan to reverse uh, aging? Uh, yeah, for sure. So I'll dive right into that. Um, so at BioAge, we think that really the low-hanging fruit in aging is to copy what already works. There already are a lot of people who live to be 100 plus in great cognitive health and great physical health. What's different about those people at the molecular level that we can target with a drug? And so our whole approach at BioAge is to really follow large cohorts of people throughout their aging, because humans do age on the scale of decades from like 50 to 100, and then map out using modern omics technologies and systems biology and AI, all the different pathways uh, that you know, predispose to exceptional longevity and then target those with therapies. And that's true for the first three clinical bets we've made, uh, as well as for additional ones we'll make over time. Amazing. Um... Anyone can take up uh, the next uh, answer. So, Nir, George, Jim, Alejandro. Sure, uh, I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll strengthen Kristen approach because I'm doing centenarians uh, studies. Centenarians have longevity genes. We're doing an effort with Regeneron, a pharmaceutical, to get ten thousand more centenarians in order to find all the longevity genes that your know, longevity genes. There's no one public longevity genes. They actually have several ways of getting to 100. But I think this is crucial for at least phase one to start making a, making improvement now. Of course, the centenarians still have a, a, a limited capacity. They, they won't live beyond you know, 115 years, but at least we can make progress now. I, I also want to say uh, in my introduction, I'm, I'm also founder of a company called Cobar, um, and it's a public company. And what we have is the genome of the mitochondria. You all know about the genome of, of our nucleus, but the mitochondria has genome. And we discovered that the mitochondria produce lots of proteins that have role in resiliency in aging, and we're developing them into treatment. So this is just an example of another biotech that takes us a certain approach and targets aging. Jim, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, I'll just say that uh, obviously I'm, I'm uh, overwhelmed by the uh, potency and capability of the scientists on this call, which I'm not. But at Juvenescence, um, our background is, uh, you know, the background of the founders is in drug development. 
and um, we are taking the view that we're not sure what's going to work, and I don't think anyone really is sure what's going to work, but we know something is going to work. And um, so we've got 20 projects, um, which is contrary, I think, to what most companies are doing. We're, we're sort of um, sniping our way towards success, we hope, at least. Um, but I absolutely agree with uh, Kristen and Nir. I, I think they're saying this, that um, alteration of the genes is going to be the, the factor that causes someone to live to 150. You know, all the other stuff is probably going to be incremental. It won't be revolutionary, but gene therapy ultimately will be the thing that will allow some people on this call to live to 150 and beyond. Thank you. Uh, George, please go ahead. Yeah. So uh, just like Nir uh, agrees with Kirsten about veterinarians, I, I agree with Jim about uh, gene therapy. Uh, I think it is a, a, a great way of getting uh, specific delivery to uh, e either systemically or to very specific parts of the body. It allows you to go directly from a, a molecular biology hypothesis to a therapy uh, without doing a lot of stumbling around for drugs that are sufficiently sufficient uh, specific. So we've done, uh, we've published uh, a, a couple of combination gene therapies, uh, each involving three uh, different genes. One set was completely cell um, non-autonomous, meaning it would spread out from the cells that was in, and that was uh, FGF21 and a soluble TGF-beta uh, receptor and alpha-clotho. And then we did another one with uh, David Sinclair's lab working on the classic Yamanaka factors, uh, um, OX4, SUX2, and KLF4. But the, the, uh, the key thing is that these have been shown um, in, in a variety of ways to actually do aging reversal. So it's not particularly speculative nor particularly far off in the future. I mean, it really is a matter of just getting through the clinical trials, um, which you know, we've done mouse and dog, and we're uh, looking forward to doing uh, human now. Thank you, George. Alejandro, would you like to go? Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me. I mean, this is an amazing panel and I'm super pleased to be to be part of it. So uh, just to switch uh, a little in a different direction for us, uh, we strongly believe that aging is an uh, epigenetic state. Uh, we believe that uh, aging is actually a reversible epigenetic state. And therefore, we think that uh, the dysregulation of the epigenome that occurs as we age is probably one of the strongest drivers. So for us, uh, in order to target this, uh, we are trying to develop yeah, uh, what, uh, what I think my name is may maybe known for, uh, reprogramming. So we are trying to develop uh, therapies based on epigenetic reprogramming. So try to reverse uh, all epigenome back to a younger state. So this is a little the approach that we are taking. I mean, I would like even to add that uh, as George just mentioned, I mean, uh, it's true that Yamanaka factors have the capacity to do this, but at the end, these are genes that are already present in our genome. It's just that they are epigenetically silent. So for us, I mean, even uh, epigenetic reprogramming of Yamanaka factors endogenous could be already away. But uh, yes, so uh, we strongly think that the epigenome is, uh, is a main driver and that uh, manipulating the epigenome and reprogramming back to a younger state could reverse aging. 
Thank you, Alejandro. And last but not least, Jay. Sure. Um, thanks for inviting me. Uh, yeah, I mean, my focus is on the logic and the rationale behind why all of these research scientists are working in an area that uh, requires funding and uh, exploring the value of this work for public health and for uh, health span extension. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a little curious about the language about age reversal because I've heard it used several times here, and I think the public may get the impression that we're going to make us into younger versions of ourselves. I'm 67. If if uh, my friends here are suggesting you're going to turn me into a 20-year-old version of myself, I would most welcome it, of course, but um, I don't think that that's really what we're talking about. So I would just urge caution about how we present this to the public uh, and in, also in terms of lifespan itself, talking about 150-year-old people when the maximum lifespan we've observed is a 122, even if we had a therapeutic intervention that could make us live to 150, we wouldn't know that it worked for at least 30 to 40 years. Um, so I, I just want us to stick to science. Thank you, Jay. Um, that's it's very interesting to have the public policy side of things here, and that we're very glad that you were able to make it. Nathan, yeah, going back to the science, your question. Yeah, I think what Jay mentioned is, is a good segue, right? Um, so when we're developing therapies that modulate aging, per, perhaps slow it down or, or, or whatever, um, I guess we should ask the panelists, uh, how do we know that uh, these therapies that are being developed in scientific labs or being brought to clinical trials are actually have an effect on aging? Um, maybe we can start with uh, Nir. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so, look, um, you know, our, the, the fact that uh, Jay, 68 years old, has to do a lot with the fact that at once, one point we build sores and we clean the water and we developed surgery and immunization, right? So um, we're not going to uh, one day wake up and say, okay, this is 150 years, I think, um, uh, Jay alluded to other things. So the major mission is, which is a huge and frustration, frustrating mission is to get the FDA, really you need the government or the governments or the, or the world to understand that aging is preventable. Um, that there's a lot of data to suggest that uh, aging can be has a biology that can be targeted, it can be delayed, it can be stopped, it can re be reversed in certain situations, like in older people, if they have enough of senescent cells, uh, probably. And, and, you know, and so the challenge is uh, to do a study that will, uh, will open the gates so that pharmaceuticals will have the help the biotech and there'll be lots of studies out there. So beside doing this study, the other thing that is missing, and it's a kind of a catch-22, is those biomarkers for aging that Kristen uh, can talk more about. We, we are just shy, and I, I think it's going to be rapid now, but we're just shy 
of having those biomarkers because after all, we don't want to do a phase three study with billions of dollars to fail. We need in several weeks or months to know if any tool that we have or any gerotherapeutics that we'll have will have this effect. So those are the two things on my mind, most of all. Can I amplify this, what you're talking about? So, so Nir is raising a critical, uh, critically important point here, and that is the first thing is to recognize something that a lot of folks don't, still don't recognize, which is the simple conclusion that aging itself is inherently modifiable. Um, that is a profound conclusion in the world of aging science and aging biology and in public health. And let me just uh, state that we don't need to talk about adding 20, 30, 40, 50 years to life. We don't need to talk about immortality. All we need to talk about is delaying aging by one year. One year. In and of itself would have a huge impact on quality of life public health, and the economy, just one year. And that's all you need to, to argue here. And it's now been documented in the literature uh, what the economic value is of a single year of healthy life extension. So let's just shoot for something that's achievable um, and measurable. So this is, this is George. Uh, I, I, uh... I agree with Jay that we just need to have an impact of a year, but sometimes it's hard to, you need a large cohort to show that it is a year of extension, but uh, maybe less, a smaller cohort to show that you have reversal of a disease. And to Nir's point about convincing the public or the FDA about prevention, I think it's, it's a little bit easier to show that you have reversal of a disease I agree with Jay that we don't want to act like we're 20 year olds or act like we're going to be 20 year olds. Um, but um, if we have reversal of disease that fits much more into the standard logic of, uh, of the FDA, but it can have with it the prevention of all the other diseases as a, as a side effect. Um, so rather than promising uh, longevity or promising um, prevention, which is very hard to get FDA approval of treating a, an already healthy person. Um, we can go with the flow and, um, and actually do reversal of a variety of diseases that have very little in common other than that they have underlying uh, epigenetic phenomenon that uh, causes them to increase uh, tremendously with age. So we're curing uh, or reversing um, these diseases by a common mechanism, but all we have to do is, um, you know, extend someone's life by a year that has some, one of these many uh, common and deadly dis uh, symptoms. Yeah, just to chime in there, I think that's a, a really important point that that aging and disease are, you know, two sides of the same coin, right? Like they, they don't, you don't have aging without disease. Um, and for those of us that are that are in the clinic working on a, a true aging target or a true aging drug, it will have a significant impact on, you know, really multiple different age-related diseases. And that might be the first fast clinical path um, that's practical. 
Um, but to, to Nir's point as well, right? Like ideally you'd like to know in the course of your trial that not only is it just relevant to this one disease, but that you are ultimately affecting um, fundamental processes of aging. And to that end, um, I think that, you know, we all believe that biomarkers are gonna be really important, something that really predicts, you know, your aging state, your, your lifespan, your future health span. I think the field has made tremendous strides just in the last decade in terms of building really predictive markers um, from, from genomics data like the methylome, the proteome, the metabolome. And I, those are heavily used in research now and I, I hope to see them start to be used in the clinical setting as well. Can I add just, you know, and, and being being a clinician, give me, you know, when you're a clinician, then when you go to medical school, first thing they teach you is to do no harm. OK, so may, that makes you conservative immediately. And the, and the second day they say there's no always and there's no never in medicine. So you lose confidence. And, and I'm saying that just because those are the people who are making these decisions. Okay, so, so from their perspective, look what happens with a simple example of metformin, a cheap, generic, safe drug that have shown, first of all, to prevent diabetes in people who don't have diabetes. The FDA is reluctant to approve metformin for the prevention of diabetes, a study like a phase three trial that has occurred already. Not to talk about the fact that metformin is shown to decrease cancer, Alzheimer, uh, cardiovascular, and mortality in clinical and association studies. So when, when so we have to think of it this way. And by the way, I, everything you said is true, and we have to do it in parallel. But if we really want people to focus about aging, if we want pharmaceutical to have this breath to say, you know, we're developing a, a, a pill that everybody will take. And you know what? They'll take it for decades. If we want that, we need also to do the whole, <laughs> the whole thing and not, and not only uh, diseases, which is a way to get money in order to get to aging, in my mind, mainly. Jim, as an investor, how does this regulation or the way thing um, affect investments and where the capital is allocated? Okay, well, Laura, I think that the biomarkers is a very key part of this, but obviously the FDA has to be persuaded that the biomarkers are an acceptable substitute for lengthy trials, and that's going to be a big uh, deal if that happens. I, I think that you know the biomarkers are getting ever more sophisticated. The um, biological clocks are getting ever more sophisticated and they're going to be very, very accurate and potent, I'm sure, in two or three years' time. But we need to get the FDA and other regulatory agencies like the EMA to accept that they are good substitutes for uh, lengthy trials, since we all live, you know, human beings live relatively long lives. Um, uh, the, the 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 second thing is I completely agree with Nir that you know metformin is a very I mean obviously uh, Nir is Mr Metformin in the world I completely agree that that is a, a no brainer in terms of its uh, ability to do something in the field of aging but I also think and just to get back to my earlier point that we're in the dial up phase of the internet at the moment we we really don't know who the winner of the web browsers the winner of the of the you know the internet providers and all that sort of stuff is going to be, um, but we know that someone's going to win. Uh, ultimately, 
I agree. I also agree with Jay that one year would be a good start, but it's really one year as a rounding error in terms of how long we live. I mean, maybe we should go for five or 10 years as a sort of uh, uh, objective to begin with. And we certainly don't want to scare the horses by suggesting that everyone can live to 150 by some sort of pharmaceutical approach, because that's just not going to happen for a while. Um, it's, you know, uh, the, the, we, we do this thing in increments and then suddenly the increments become big jumps. Thanks, Jim. Um, Alejandro, uh, any comments uh, before we move on to the next question about, you know, the biomarkers of aging or, or any other comments that any other speaker made? Um, yeah. Yes. So, I, I mean, I completely agree with most of the things that we uh, that have been said. Uh, for us, of course, if we think about the epigenome as a main driver, of course, we are very enthusiastic about DNA methylation clocks no, or any other clock that can measure aging based on the epigenome. I mean, still, I feel the majority of the field does not agree on the value of these biomarkers. So I think maybe the, one of the first things we need is to agree on what biomarkers have good value to measure aging, because before that, it will be impossible to convince uh, FDA or investors that they should really allow us to run a trial. So I think, again, methylation clocks for us are good. I think are very accurate, but I think still there is a large part of the field that does not believe they are good biomarkers. I think sometimes it's also because we confuse a biomarker with a driver. I am, I am saying that DNA methylation is good, but I'm not necessarily saying that changes in DNA methylation drive aging. I think we can look at it and we can measure aging, but not necessarily say that these changes is what drive the process. And then in a second line, I would like to add that blood for us, uh, I completely agree with what the Christian are, uh, and the team are doing. I think blood has a lot of value. Uh, everything you can do in the blood, from uh, genomics to proteomics to analyze cell populations, markers of senescence, so it will have a tremendous value there. And of course, don't forget uh, what people care, uh, how people behave, how they perform, both uh, functionally and also cognitive. And lastly, of course, incidence of age-related diseases. So I would like just to group all together. But I think we need first to start agreeing on good biomarkers of aging. Thank you, Alejandro. I just wanted to quickly say that Jay will have to step off the panel, but thank you again for being here and mentioning public policy, and um, which is quite important. Um, or my next question, we've touched on public policy and, reg and regulation. So this weekend, Richard Branson went to space. And while some of us saw a great feat of science and a 70-year-old man accomplishing a lifelong dream, others saw a billionaire wasting money. Longevity also has this perception problem of, uh, by the media of being deemed a fancy of billionaires. Do we think it's important to change this and how do we do it? Or how are your organizations doing this? Well, let me just say, uh, first of all, uh, I think scientifically he didn't go to space. Yes, <laughs> um, true. <laughs> but, but, but I would, I would say that those those who support those who support this effort, and I have nothing against this effort. You should know that. I mean, our, our mission as humanity is not to go fifty miles above. If we want to go to Mars, okay, we need to solve aging first of all, okay? So, so this is for me the connection. But it's more than that. You know, we're not talking only about aging. We're talking about people who survive from cancer, from cancer because they got, uh, you know, 
chemicals and radiation that accelerate their aging. They're aging rapidly. They need help. People who have HIV die 10 years younger than their cohort. People who are debilitated on wheelchair, they have a very bad health span and short lifespan. It's not only about aging. There's a lot of others who need help. And I think we have to frame it differently so people don't think that this is just a life extension this is something that's important for humanity whether uh, to the poor unfortunate or to those who want to go to space <laughs> can, can i follow up uh, one thing before i leave yes um, so to, just to re-emphasize what nir is saying here this um this this question comes up all the time on uh whether or not we should be spending precious resources on reducing infectious disease mortality versus going after aging. And I've heard it multiple times that this is all a waste of money, you know, billionaires trying to extend their lives. That's not what this is all about. Um, this is a fundamental foundational public health effort. Uh, like we've never, well, we've, we've, we saw something like this a little over 120 years ago with the foundation of public health, but with the introduction of antibiotics and vaccines, this is on the order of something like that. And what we're talking about, and I think the language we should be using is, uh, involves uh, a, so, something simple, a simple metric that uh, is referred to as a person year of, of healthy life. And think of a person year of healthy life as one of the most valuable commodities that exists on earth. Um, and, you know, you talk to any of the billionaires, of course, and they'll trade their money in for healthy life uh, any day of the week. And that's what we're talking about here is manufacturing through science, through technology, the most precious commodity that may exist, uh, which is health span extension. And you get more healthy life added with a one year or two year or three year slowdown in the rate of aging than you would get with a cure for cancer. Uh, think about that for a second. Um, the impact uh, has a cascading effect on multiple disease endpoints. Uh, and, and so the benefits are quite large with small improvements um, in delayed aging. And I think that's the logic and the rationale we should be using in general. And it's the general response to the comment that this is just for billionaires. It's not. It's for everyone. Thank you, Jay, and thank you for being here again. This is very important that um, th th this is one of the reasons we have these conversations for people to understand this message. Um, anybody else wants to comment on this? Yeah, this is George. Oh, Kristen, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, anyway, I was just going to say along the lines, taking Jay's in a slightly different direction, is that, uh, you know, we're my group is highly motivated to bring down the costs of technologies so that it is accessible to everybody. So we've brought down the cost of like reading genomes by 20 million fold. The, the, the cost of some things like vaccines uh, or, uh, uh, drops precipitously once something goes extinct like smallpox. So we're, so aging, I see not, not just as not being elitist, it is possibly something that, that reduces costs of uh, medicine in general, because it might be, it might have uh, a preventative uh, mechanism that's applicable to everyone. 
uh, in which case the, the fixed cost of the, of the clinical trials is amortized over a much larger denominator of, of individuals. So, so it could be the opposite of elitists if we, if we play our cards right. So I, I think that's a, an important aspect. And it's, what, and it's also amplifies on what Nir said, is that this is not just about uh, one disease or, or about longevity. It's, it really impacts almost every form of morbidity and mortality including things like falling down and not getting up. So it really ha could have a huge impact on everyone and, and therefore be very inexpensive. I think the, the economic arguments, um, as you've outlined, uh, Jay and George, are incredibly compelling. And that's, you know, these therapies can ultimately help everybody. And I think it's a real, um, it's, it's, it's massive misunderstanding that people are not identifying increase in life extent, you know, life extension with health span extension with freedom from disease. Uh, but even in the very near term, um, I think it does resonate with people that studying aging can help us even in the way that we treat conventional diseases. Because remember, like we spend a fortune every year on treating cancers and research for cancers, biotech for cancer and for Alzheimer's disease, right? Uh, diseases that happen to people that are, that are old, that are in their 80s, that are not in their 20s. Um, but that are still studied, not usually in the context of aging, you know, like the mouse models for Alzheimer's disease are in these genetic backgrounds that are very unlike how it happens naturally. Um, so I think there's a message there too, that looking at disease through the lens of aging uh, will find important new causal targets uh, in the near term. And then ultimately these mechanisms will also be helpful for, for prevention and for the population at large. Uh, let me also point, uh, and you can find it, there's an Andrew Scott who is an economist, uh, an article that came in Nature Aging, that, that really look at the economy of health span from many perspectives, because, because it's not only the health cost, it's what those guys who are healthy doing. You know, they are traveling, they are buying things, they are doing other things. And, and the bottom line is that we were underestimating those longevity dividend. Um, um, if, if, we, if we look from G GDP perspective, um, it can save 36.9% of GDP if in the next 10 years we'll extend health spend by 2.6 years only. It's 83.6 trillions of dollars. I mean, you should look at the figures in, in these papers and we have to really use it simply to explain to economists, to um, people in the government that the longevity dividend here is huge and then we can have money to do other things too. Jim? Yeah, <laughs> I'll just say, and thank you, Laura, I'll just say that um, there has to be a price for innovation. I mean, we, some of us are involved in the pharma uh, development business. And, you know, you have the greatest innovation in the United States. I think that, you know, drug prices ab initio have to be relatively high. Otherwise, people won't develop drugs. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a straightforward proposition. Um, but the great news is that we live a long life, as I said earlier on, and the commercial exploitation period for drugs is only about 10 years. So very quickly, these drugs will be in wide dispersal across the populations in rich and poor countries alike. So I think that, you know, the initial inventors of these products have to make a profit because the 
rate of failure is so high and the cost of innovation is so high. But very quickly, um, the price comes down to basically peanuts and it's accessible to everyone. And I'll give you a very brief example of that in earlier times. Ulcer drugs, anti-ulcer drugs, were developed in the 1980s. And they were very, very expensive. Drugs like Zantac or Tagamet or Omprazole. And today, they were really expensive drugs and people died of ulcers. And today, you can go into Walgreens or Boots or wherever you are and buy them for almost nothing. And it will be the same with aging drugs. So this idea that it's only for billionaires, it's elitist, and all this sort of stuff is absolute nonsense because it will be accessible to everyone within 10 or 20 years. Thank you. I, Alejandro, please go yes. ahead. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I would like to actually rem remind ev everyone that actually when we speak about breakthroughs, I think, yes, they will happen at some point. But I think first we need to make simple things to happen. No, I think in the aging field, if we compare the longevity with going to Mars, I think first we need to go to the moon, then we need to be able to fly a rocket. So I think even the early first steps have not been done. Like to me, to have even a trial for an anti-aging drug needs to happen before we have an ultimate breakthrough where we can really reverse. No? So to me, I want to be very cautious here and to say that uh, I think the first drugs that will be out there would be drugs that you will take very frequently in a preventive way. And then ultimately, yes, at some point when we learn from all that, you will have drugs that will reverse aging. But I think we need to go step by step. It's true that now, uh, why this time is different, I feel is because the society and the world is feeling that aging is actually a real problem. In the past, it used to be you just say it's something natural and there is nothing you can do about it. So in the moment the public starts to learn that, uh, yeah, there is something you can maybe do about it. And actually it's important, it's becoming a real problem. Society, pension, retirement, uh, it's like the climate change of humanity. You know, I, I hear people saying sometimes. So I think, yes, the pressure that society is putting to and the interest uh, is clearly uh, maybe accelerating these breakthroughs. But I think still we are in the first steps of making this happen. Thank you, Alejandro. Um, I mean, indeed, longevity science, it is uh, the promise for us to live longer with health, which most people would say yes if they knew they had that choice. And that's why we want to hear from you directly, all of you directly explaining this to the audience and everybody who, are, who is curious about the field. With that said, I'm just going to quickly reset the room. And uh, we are in North and the future of longevity panel discussing the science of longevity with some of the most prominent scientists, innovators, and investors in the field. And this uh, we have uh, nearby Salai, Alejandro Campo, uh, Kristen Fortney, George Church, and Jim Mellon. And co-hosting with me is Nathan Chang and Avi Roy. And we we are going to move into the Q and A part very soon. Uh, we'll let you know as soon as we start that. Uh, please remember to keep your questions short and not to make them about um, health recommendations. Uh, with that said, I can't remember if it's Avi or Nathan that has the next question. Please go ahead. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll just uh, jump in, jump straight up. Uh, this one will be a little bit exciting and hopefully audience, you will benefit from this. Um, near Alejandro, Kristen, George, you guys all have a vision of how uh, what the future looks like. I mean, Jim, uh, you're an investor, uh, so I mean, you invest on 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 that like 
what you imagine that the world is going to be 10 or 20 years from now. I know that you have given talks about that. George, you do that about technology um, uh, near. You have been involved in clinical trials. So are you now, uh, Kristen? And of course, Alejandro, as a scientist, you are definitely imagining you know, what the future um, kind of entails. So the question is about two or three things that you fundamentally believe is inevitable in the future of longevity, aging, and health. I'm just pointing out about the next 10 years. Um, and also, if you could also talk about uh, the obstacles that might prevent it uh, from happening. Um, so anybody uh, who wants to start with that. Uh, so two or three things that you fundamentally believe is inevitable uh, in the future of longevity, aging, and health, and what are some of the obstacles? Um, I, I, I sure can, can start. I am, um, you know, I want to quote Bill Gates who said we're overestimating what we can achieve in, in two years and underestimating what we can achieve in decade. I would, I would, I would take it and, and say, if I can predict the future, I'll do it very expensively. So there, there are four scenarios. About, and by the way, I got those scenarios from this paper of Brusco. There's the, the Gulliver approach where Scarbridge lived, uh, he lived, he, he got older, but never died that we don't want that, right? We don't want to extend a lifespan without extending health span. Fortunately, we know that if we target aging, we do both. Uh, so the next uh, possibility is to do a Dorian uh, Gray scenario where Dorian Gray, you know, the mirror when he looked at the mirror, the mirror aged, but he stayed young. In other words, how or, or, or stayed in the same age, I should say. So how can we stop aging in people who are already old? I think this is something that's achievable. We can start with simple drugs like you all, all know or exercise and stuff and actually gain some years until George is doing the, you know, the, the genetic therapy. Um, then there is the Peter Pan example, right? Where uh, Peter Pan doesn't age. And I think that in the future, probably we'll think about, we don't have to stop aging when it happens. We have to stop aging before it happens. And, and maybe an, a, a one monthly genetic epigenetic uh, clearing <laughs> will be all we need to stop uh, aging. And of course, there's the Wolverine that, uh, that takes old and makes them uh, young. I hope that we don't need to do that. But in a certain way, the senolytics are doing that. They're taking old people with a lot of senescent cells and, and will make them much younger, at least functionally. So I think the, the vision is there. We have to work on it in parallel and we'll get it at different time points. So what I believe is going to be true for human aging and true pretty soon is that we're going to discover that really a lot of different things are going to work, a lot of different mechanisms, a lot of different targets. Like I'm pretty bullish here and I think the field is wide open and longevity science, we have, you know, I would say we're still mapping out what's the most important for human aging. But we know, for example, like all the different things that can make a worm live longer. People have done these, you know, genome wide experiments and the answer is that hundreds of things can make a worm live longer and healthier. <laughs> and while I expect the identity of those things to be different in humans, I expect the scale to be similar. There's probably lots of different pathways you can intervene in. As you mentioned at the beginning, right, these centenarians seem to be living to, to 100 via different mechanisms, and probably those are going to be additive. 
Uh, and, and in terms of what could get in the way of us making that discovery, it's just really not trying enough things. I think that we need to really do a lot of experiments in the clinic, in human populations with safe and promising mechanisms. Yeah, I can, I can actually come in. So I actually believe in four things that will happen. The first three are actually interconnected. So I do believe that we will have drugs or therapies that will slow down or even reverse aging, that the regulatory agencies like FDA, EMA will approve aging as an indication, and that the investors will invest in developing anti-aging drugs that target aging, organismal aging. I think the three of them need each other. No, I think scientists need to provide those drugs and those biomarkers. Regulatory agencies, uh, when they believe in those, they will accept and allow you trials and investors will finally decide to invest. So I think those three are clearly interconnected. It's like the chicken and the egg. And then the last one I want to mention is I do believe that uh, finally the biomedical research field will realize that modeling AIDS-associated diseases in young mice is uh, useless. So I do believe that uh, people will start using AIDS mice in order to model diseases of uh, all AIDS. Uh, can I just say something, uh, Avi? Um, what is rather sad is that, you know, a lot of us on this call uh, do multiple calls and there is a small cadre of people who will listen, but the big story has not yet got out there. And as a result, only a relatively small amount of money, we think about four and a half billion dollars, has gone into the uh, private sector of aging and a very small amount of the government research budgets around the world has gone into aging, even though it's probably the most critical scientific endeavor, uh, you know, of anyone's lifetime. And I think all of us need to find a way of getting our message out to a newer audience and also to an audience that will bring much more money into the sector. Because if there's not much more money, then we're probably in five years' time going to be talking about more or less the same sort of stuff. So I don't know how that's going to happen, but it's very important that it does happen. And, uh, you, I, you know, Kristen, Nir, uh, other people, uh, we're all joining forces to try and make that happen. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to happen. Meanwhile, cannabis attracts $100 billion of investment, psychedelics, $20 billion of investments, you know, Richard Branson going to space, I don't know how much that costs, but, you know, the, the wrong priorities are getting lots of money and we are not getting enough money. Thank you, Jim. Uh, George, any, any insights? Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Jim that we need to have a, uh, to expand the audience. Uh, a couple of ways to do that is, uh, one is to show results in a rapid way. And one way to do that is via veterinary. <clears throat> so a lot of people love their pets. And so one of the things we're doing at Rejuvenate Bio is aiming our first wave at, uh, at dogs because um, the approval process is faster, the costs are lower, and people can, get, can, can see with their own eyes the impact of uh, things that have been proven already in, in mice. So that's, that's one approach. The other approach is that reaches instead of, you know, maybe the, you know, maybe a thousand people that this, this particular program will reach, you can reach tens of millions 
um, with television and movies and books and uh, magazines. So, so in, um, in organizations like pged.org, um, they, they have a conduit to uh, screenwriters and other writers. So I think those are two things that, that could uh, get a better pr- set of priorities. I completely agree with, with Jim about that. Uh, and, with, and I agree with Kristen uh, about how it's, there are many ways to, to, to solve the problem, I'll, for example, in worms. But most of those ways are fairly small effects. And just so we might want to combine them. Uh, combinations are not always additive. Sometimes they're uh, antithetical and sometimes they're synergistic. And so that will take some finesse. But I think we need to uh, really probably have to get everything, all the pathways straight. So even though there's many r- roots of making a small impact, there, there may be a, uh, a slightly more difficult, but still something that could happen in the next couple of years because of the exponential technologies we have. Um, that we can get all the pathways right all, all at once. Uh, so I think that's maybe the nuanced uh, version. Thank you, George. We at Longevity definitely need somebody like an Oprah uh, being an enthusiast of it. And I think we would see a very big jump in uh, enthusiasm from the general public. Uh, with that said, we are going to let our audience now come up to ask questions. Again, um, we're, it's not a, we're asking you to please uh, make sure that the question is about the subject and we're not giving any health advice here. I will let uh, Nathan and Avi take care of that and uh, just make sure that you filled out your bio. We're not letting anyone who doesn't have bios filled out to come up on stage. Also, FYI, we are recording this. So if you come up on stage to ask a question, uh, that means you consent to us using your voice in the recording. Okay, great. Uh, our first uh, audience members, Erin, uh, uh, can you ask, come up and uh, ask your question? Uh, sure. Um, so do you guys think that, in, or have you ever considered that it's possible that we're looking at the wrong side of the equation when looking at aging in general? Like um, the, the metaphor I'm going to use here is if we were trying to figure out how to fly, you wouldn't look at all the creatures that don't fly and try to figure out like how to fly based on that you'd be looking at things that fly so do you think that maybe we should be looking at regeneration as the trait rather than aging as the trait or have you considered that um, possibility oh well i'll take that uh, uh, in a certain sense we we're we're looking at both we're looking at extremely long-lived individuals we're looking at long-lived animals uh, like bowhead whales. Um, and we're also looking at bona fide cases of aging reversal. So, so as you say, the, you know, the animals with wings, would the equivalent would be things like reversing the, the state of a cell from, say, an 80-year-old human cell to a nearly embryonic one. That's an extreme uh, case that kind of proves a point that you can uh, really uh, go long distance in epigenetic space. Um, in um, reversing as, as many uh, cell-based uh, uh, phenotypes as, you, as we've examined so far. But good question, thank you. Alejandro or Kristen or Nir or, or Jim, anybody else want to take that question? Well, I would actually like to add into that one. I mean, I think uh, clearly with the reprogramming, 
just like uh, George said, uh, in vitro we can uh, basically reverse the age of a cell back to an embryonic-like state. But even if we want to go uh, farther and if we look in nature, well, that's basically what uh, fertilization and reproduction does. No, you are combining uh, all sides and eggs from uh, individuals that have a certain age and you generate a new individual that will have a normal lifespan. So I think even reprogramming is already trying to mimic uh, a natural process that occurs uh, every day. And just super briefly, right, there are some animals out there that are like us, mammals, but that live hundreds of years like bowhead whales. So there are some efforts, scientific efforts, to try to figure out what's different and if we can copy some of their secrets. But, um, but it's, I think it's still early days and, and it's challenging. Okay. Um, just short, really short add-on. Do you guys think that germ cells are ageless? I just, I will say no. Uh, they they still age, and this is why uh, they don't have the same uh, reproductive capacity. No, the oocytes from a twenty year old versus a forty year old is definitely not the same. So I would say yes, they still age. Yes. Thank you, Alejandro. Um, uh, Nir, unless you have somebody else uh, or something else to add, uh, maybe we can go to the next question. Well, I'll I'll just say that um, to, to pick on the last comment. Um, we can we can measure the aging of ovaries and testes, but when a, a sperm fertilizes an egg and the you know the baby is developed, uh, then then there is a erasement of age there, and that's why we're so optimistic that we have figured out naturally how to do something like that. So how how can we do it in a whole body, and 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 when it's post development. Thank you. Okay. Uh, uh, thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Nir. Uh, Michael, um, you're up next if you want to ask you. Yep. Thanks, Avi. Great panel, Laura, Nathan. Great combo, everyone. Um, do you guys think that there's enough you know, evidence that aging is modifiable at this point that convincing a majority of society is just a matter of more time and more propaganda? Or do you think you know, there's going to have to be additional big milestones um, in the lab before a majority of people are able to be convinced that aging is modifiable. I, I can I, I can start it by saying that, yeah, first of all, there, there's no doubt that we have overwhelming data that aging is, is uh, modifiable. Over a, over really, you know, uh, the extent of the data is impressive and and part of the reason that people don't understand it is for example if you're in cancer cure cancer this is a really hard task because every cancer has its own genome that is different than the genome of 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 of, of the guy who has the cancer, and it's different than any cancers like that in the world. So you have to be very personalized in doing that. Aging is really conserved through evolution, okay? And that means that everybody kind of age the same way, you know, the skin, the hair, uh, the skeletal, the diseases, the cancer, they are different, but the diseases are, are kind of the same. And that is why some of the drugs and some of the interventions that we're giving are working in all animals, not only. So 
I, I, think, I think really the idea of targeting aging not only has been proven, it's simpler than some of the tasks of dealing with diseases that are already there, whether it's cancer or sarcopenia, you know, frailty, it's too late for that. So, so I think we have enough data. It's more of our marketing, publicity, and people believing that this is here now. Thank you, Nir. Um, Kristen has to jump off soon, so maybe she can answer before leaving. And thank you again for being here with us. Oh, sure. Yeah, just, just a last comment. And thanks for a great panel, guys. Um, but yeah, I, I think the right kind of marketing could go a long way. I think there's too much focus on the sort of sensationalist stuff that in some ways put people off aging. <laughs> so, so focusing on, on the, the real science and the real developments, I think um, that that said, if we actually had something working, you know, in a human, uh, you know, if someone, you know, got their hair back even, <laughs> um, I think that that package would make it even more compelling, right? But as people mentioned earlier, that the field has been so chronically underfunded that even straightforward approaches to, um, you know, get the word out there, I think would, would, could make a big difference. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to hop off now. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you again for being here. We're going to go to our next question. Pat, please go ahead. Hello everyone. I was just wondering, I was always curious if nanotechnology if it was available, um, would it be possible to target certain um, things in the body at a cellular level to reverse aging if there was the availability of nanotechnology like tiny robots that you breathe in to um, sort of they go through your body um, and repair cells or um, something along those lines if, if the technology is being worked on or if it's too far away from even being uh, available. So, so uh, this is George Pat. I, I, uh, uh, I published uh, on uh, nanorobots uh, that that were that were in biologically inspired, and I would say that the nanotechnology that works that ha has been working and is likely to continue to be appropriate for this task, at least. Um, is bio nanotechnology, um, and uh, biology is already amazing. It can it it it, it can make things that are atomically precise at scale. Um, in the catalytic core of bio nano machines, um, a fraction of an angstrom, a fraction of an atomic bond, matters. Uh, to the catalytic rate, and that can be finessed not just through ancient evolution, but through modern uh, machine learning and, and uh, accelerated uh, evolution through highly parallel synthesis. So I think uh, your intuition about nano uh, devices is good. Uh, I think the most effective ones now, and probably for quite a while, will be bio nano. Um, there's we're not, bio nano is not necessarily limited in the periodic table. Um, um, a huge fraction of the periodic table can, has been incorporated into either natural or synthetic biology. So I think uh, that's where we're going to see a lot of progress that you can call nanotechnology if you'd like. 
Thank you, George. Um, we're going to move on to our next question. Uh, thanks for your question, Patty. It was great. Um, Aidan. Hi. Um, my name's Eden. Thanks for taking my question. I'd like to ask the scientists what, obstacle, what obstacles they're facing in their research that might delay or prevent progress. Thank you. Very Alejandro or Nier, do you want to take this? Or Jim, as an investor, you're also welcome to say something. And I think you mentioned it very succinctly. It's a lack of funding. Yes. Yeah. I, I just, uh, just, uh, just to underline that, I think that's that uh, that's the key. Um, and so everyone uh, needs to on this on this call needs to try and find ways of getting people interested in this sector. Yes, I, I agree 100%. Funding is uh, is key, but I think large funding, I think, is coming, but more will come in the moment we provide the first uh, human data. I think, connecting to the question before, we have good data in models that we can slow down aging. I'm not so sure about reversing, but at least that we can slow down aging. I think in the moment we have human data, uh, then uh, things will change uh, significantly, even if it's with a simple drug, with whatever, just uh, showing human data that aging can be... Uh, modify and I think even there, a point that I just mentioned before. I think pets, uh, whether it's cats, dogs, they're going to play also a fundamental role in convincing people that you can really extend health span and life span. Uh, because yeah, this will be much quicker. Yes, especially with millennials having less children, dogs take uh, over that space. So it's a huge, huge. Um, they're like family. It's it's a huge industry as well pet care and um, accessories and all of that. With that said, uh, thank you for your question, Eden. Um, Masha, welcome to the stage and thanks for being here. Oh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Masha. I'm an asset manager and uh, uh, thank you for having uh, this great, great, great panel. Thank you for time for your knowledge. And uh, my question uh, will be to George Church uh, about one of the companies where he's on board. Uh, about IntelliTherapeutics. Therapeutics. Uh, in the end of the June, uh, the company announced uh, that they are going into human trials. And uh, I want to ask you if you can ask, if you can tell us more about this project. Uh, uh, I'm what sorry. Do you expect? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry. I was, uh, your voice was a little quiet, and I didn't catch the name of the company. Intelli, Intelli Therapeutics. Intelia with Jennifer Dudna. Oh, oh, Intelia. Okay, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. At, at, uh, so Jennifer uh, and I have been involved in Intelia and in Editas, uh, uh, and uh, uh, they, they they both and CRISPR Therapeutics are three uh, sort of siblings that are all within a few blocks of each other in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I think they get along pretty well overall. Uh, and have divided up uh, the landscape for um, rare, both rare um, genetic diseases, as well as more common ones, including uh, infectious diseases. N none of them are working on the most common one of all, which is the topic of this conversation, which is, uh, you know, slowing down or reversing uh, diseases uh, of aging. Um, but yes, uh, some of those, uh, not not just the CRISPR-based uh, 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 therapies, but also gene therapies in general are are, are really undergoing an explosion of uh, success 
and of investment. Uh, and this is partly because of the Orphan Drug Act that makes that possible. Uh, but I also look forward to these powerful technologies being applied to uh, more common diseases. And I think part of the problem is it's easier to get um, approval for devastating uh, diseases, uh, especially devastating rare diseases. It's easier to get um, the approval process to work right now. But but as soon as you show a few of those and... uh, uh, and, and that's already been done for, for editing and gene therapy for, for sickle cell um, and uh, for um, ret, ret, retinal diseases, for example. Thank you, George and Masha, for your question. Um, we're going to go now to Reinhold. Please go ahead and ask your question. Uh, thank you, Laura. Thank you for organizing this amazing room. We should have more like this one. Um, my question relates to senolytics. Um, there's been a lot of promising data uh, on preclinical animal models, um, mostly showing the benefits, the potential benefits of using different periosenolytics. And now we are starting to move into, into clinical trials, so testing this in humans. Now, my question is, and sometimes when you hear companies spin out talking about senolytics, it's almost a fight of whose who senolytic is most potent and most effective. And my, my question relates to the potential toxic effects. So when you have, I mean, when we use them in the lab, they are certainly very effective. And when we work with endothelial cells and they are senescent, they, they can get wiped out 80, 90%. So they do work. My question relates, what happens if you don't have cells to replace those? So let's put an example. If you have an H brain, right? And you have a few neurons there. Um, so are you better off with keeping your old neurons than, than wiping them out and having none? So that, that's my question. Thank you. Uh, well, I, I, I can take it maybe, and, and, and I, you, you obviously you know a little bit more on senolytic, but let, let me explain something. Senescence is a protective mechanism, okay? If something goes wrong with your cell, um, they might become a, an origin of cancer if you don't eliminate them by senescence or by uh, apoptosis. There are several mechanisms. The problem is that they accumulate, and when they accumulate, they have a biology that has to do with secreting proteins and other things, and this biology accelerates aging, okay? So so you need to remove those cells, but you certainly cannot stop the process of senescence because it's a protective uh, mechanism. Uh, understand that point and um, and look um, wh- what happens out there is we know it happens everywhere uh, 95% of our drugs are failing okay that, that's why Jim is saying he's investing in 20 companies but senescence is a mechanism that is relevant to human and it'll take time maybe sooner rather than later to have uh, better and better drugs Thank you, Nir. Um, I believe that you do have to leave soon, so we're going to ask everybody to uh, be very uh, clear with their questions. So we try to get everybody um, to get to answer um, to ask. The, um, Dr. Isa Gould, welcome to the stage. Please go ahead. Thank you, Letmin. Hi, everyone. My question uh, was to Mr. Mellon, but I think he left. Uh, and my question is about. Uh, analytics 
uh, is there anyone using enzyme therapies as a synergetic drug or anyone thinking uh, uh, this could be a future trend like keratinases to skin aging or matrix metalloproteinases uh, for um, against skin aging or catalase for uh, skin spots etc uh, anyone using enzymes to get rid of senolytic proteins is there anyone I'm not an expert in the field, but I think people are trying uh, a lot of different strategies. I didn't hear before about the enzymes, but I mean, the company that comes to my mind is, of course, uh, one skin that is using a peptide to eliminate senescent cells in the in the skin. But yeah, mm -hmm. not, uh, not enzymes that I know. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Alejandro. Um, John, you're up next. Hi. Yeah, in terms of... Um market sizes, uh, I think every year we spend about uh, half a trillion dollars on injury and relating that to aging, um, has anyone, or, or what's the state of kind of hibernation, so slowing down the aging process so that you can buy yourself time to, you know, find a cure or treat uh, a battlefield wound? I don't think there's application, uh, uh, there's really application uh, that I know to that, uh, you know, it's it's believed the cal caloric restriction that extends life in animals by a lot, by by forty percent, that the metabolic rate is uh, reduced. But in fact, you have to, uh, you know, look at it not as a whole animal, but per gram of muscle or any active tissue. And and I'm I'm not sure that we're convinced that just changing metabolism is going to extend the uh, lifespan. It's, I, I, I don't see it as, a, as any company, uh, any of the biotechs who are thinking about this approach. I think, that slow, I think that slowing things down is great for trauma where, where you can spiral out of control and have multi-organ failure in, in hours. But aging is a much, typically a much longer deal and, and, and slowing down one's life for decades is not really a, a great option. I think we should all think out of the box as much as possible. So right. let's use that for well, inspiration. I think slowing down my body's, you know, aging would be interesting while my mind uh, still goes full speed on the internet. But uh, I, I guess I'm thinking more from that perspective. Of, is there a separation between mind and body there with uh, the hibernation? We'll probably have to do another series exploring that. Um, Thank you, John and George and for answering those questions. Uh, Chris, you're next. Hi, guys. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much uh, for all the panelists and all the hosts for this. Uh, what is a fantastic talk, really. And my question is, what has, uh, what has not been mentioned today which you are most excited about in the longevity or the tackling aging field? Uh. I think we've we've done a pretty good job of covering the landscape. There are definitely deeper dives that we could take on each of these topics. Um, I mean, there's there's the whole issue of uh, you know systems biology integration uh, that we've touched upon, where you might have to get uh, a bunch of things right at once. There's the issue of delivery. I think that that's something. No matter how you deliver, whether it's a small molecule or a cell therapy or anything in between. Uh, you you do have to deal with uh, delivering not too much off target um, 
and so forth. So, but these are more deeper dives into things that we we have touched upon. I, yeah, and I, I I totally agree with it. I think, except on thinking of regeneration, that is really really complex. I I don't think we have a technological obstacle. A lot of those things can be developed in the next few years. Um, so from a technological pro- problem, except, as I said, except regeneration or regeneration of the brain is just uh, impossible to think about even. But, uh, but otherwise, it's not the technology that holds us. <laughs> it's other things. Biology. <laughs> um, David, your last question of the, of the afternoon. Please go ahead. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks very much um, for letting me speak. It's been really interesting. I kind of had a kind of broad question. It was great to hear worms being mentioned, but it's about basic biology. So, you know, we we still need to understand a lot more about basic biology. For example, in the E. coli, we only know, you know, almost half of, well, about a third of the genes we don't know the function of. Um, do we, if we really want to understand how an organism ages, do we just need to know a lot more about the biology? Is it, is it that really, you know, as Jim was saying, we need much more investment. Do we really need a kind of step change in our understanding of biology before we can really get to the bottom of aging? That's what my question is. I, I, I want to I maybe start by making it some, somewhat simpler. You, you're saying, look, I know I have examples. Aging is really complex and we don't argue with it. What, what we say, though, is that they are like upstream mechanisms. A lot of them we know, and a lot of them we will discover that can be targeted a whole phenotype that you see of aging, okay? So I, I what we missed at describing aging, uh, and, and a lot of them, and they can be targeted. So I, I don't want you to be, to be a, like, so much and we don't know. I think we know a lot of the important things. <laughs> uh, this, uh, I would add that uh, we don't, in order to tackle E. coli, we don't need to know the remaining 50%. Uh, I work on E. coli, among other things. And, uh, you know, antibiotics and uh, vaccines work, are working quite well without uh, complete knowledge. We have to be careful not to let complete knowledge of the perfection of, of science interfere with engineering. For example, our knowledge of, of both virology and immunology were not only primitive, they were non-existent when we started uh, developing smallpox vaccines back in the 1500s and 1700s. And even, even by the time smallpox was eliminated, we still had very primitive knowledge of virology and immunology. Um, so that's, that's not a I'm not advocating ignorance. I'm just saying that don't let perfection uh, interfere with engineering. The engineering, you can work with a fairly limited palette uh, and still come up with amazing uh, outcomes. I, I'm not disagreeing with that. I, 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 in a way, we've kind of, we're kind of doing it in a slightly empirical way. You know, that's how we found a lot of antibiotics and other things. It's, and, and yes, we'll, we'll, we will find some great things that way, but I was just, you know, wondering if we kind of need that much more understanding to really get to the grips with aging. That's that was kind of. Uh, yeah. Well, I think question. we will get we will get tons of understanding, partly because we're in an exponential phase. Um, even though Nir says we don't need more technology, we are getting more technology, 
and it's bringing the cost down and it's bringing the knowledge up. Uh, so we will have it, but it's not just trial and error and uh, it's also engineering. You can engineer with a very limited number of parts and make some amazing uh, devices. I, 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 George, I didn't mean to uh, say we don't need technology. I meant that, that, that we could make progress with the technology that we have, <laughs> that, we, that we should do now. And it's not stopping us. I, I certainly yeah, hope I, the technology will help. I agree. Yeah, I, I, I get your point. Alejandro, I, do you want to say something as well? Yeah, I would like to add something. It's true. One of the questions I think was going to be if we know enough, no? if we have enough knowledge. I think we have some, but we could always uh, learn more. And I think we need to take both a rational and an irrational approach. No, We need to have a rational approach based on what we know and then try sometimes random things not uh, and and reiterate again no we gain something we learn more and we try again something again i think it needs to be a balance between the two i completely agree there uh, knowledge technology and they will both uh, fit each other in order to keep uh, to keep going thank you for that uh, so with that we are going to um, end the panel discussion now i wanted to thank uh, again our panelists and the audience for being here. Uh, we are going to continue to do this series and you can hear the recording of this on thefutureoflongevity.org. Uh, we, Nathan, Avi, and myself, and myself think it's important that we have this discussion so that you hear directly from the scientists and the people work, actively working on this field. I think we touched a lot of amazing uh, topics today and subjects and we want to thank Everybody that was here for their time, and uh, I, as we know, everybody's very busy. And Nathan and Navi say their thank yous, and of course, our panelists can also have something to say before we end the room. Yeah, thanks, Laura. So just uh, to reiterate, um, the recording of this session will be found on uh, futureoflongevity.org. Um, yeah, I just want to thank everybody, uh, all the hosts and all the great panelists that we had today. I uh, just also want to mention uh, if anybody in the audience is super interested in, you know, doing something about aging, maybe starting a company or joining a startup uh, in the longevity field, definitely reach out or, or go to beyonddeck.com for the um, the On Deck Longevity Biotech Fellowship Program that we just launched uh, two weeks ago. Uh, I'll hand over the mic to Avi. Thank you, Nathan. I just want to thank uh, Nir, Alejandro, George. Uh, thanks for staying on and answering all the questions in exquisite detail. Uh, I know that you guys are very busy. And yeah, thank you again for staying and, and uh, chatting with us. One other quick thing. I love uh, Fidelity and uh, everything that Nir, Alejandro, George, um, Jim, uh, or, uh, Jay, uh, and Kristen said, um, I, I mean, not only did we record it, but we'll also make a transcript of it and break it down into Q&A mm -hmm. and answers from individual speakers. Um, I personally liked how Nir uh, brought in literature of Dorian Gray. Um, and uh, so th that was really entertaining. So we should, we will have that at the futureoflongevity.org um, detailed transcripts from this talk for those who want to um, go and check that out. Um, yeah, thank you everyone for being here. This is absolutely fabulous. Can, can I just say, you know, I, I hope we convince you we're not false messiahs, you know, uh, and and I think it's really what we'd love is for you to spread the gospels, really, that this is this is real and, and we need the wave and we need each one of you to spread it so we can be successful in the other end. Thank you so much. It was a great panel.
Thanks a lot. Thank you, Nir. Alejandro, George, did you want to say something before we're in the room? Just, just thank you. Uh, thank you to everybody, uh, organizers and uh, participants and audience. Thank you. George, we hope to have you back to talk about pet longevity for sure. <laughs> okay, I'm happy to come back, yeah. Awesome. Alejandro, thank you for staying with us. You're in Europe, so um, hope to have you back as well. And with that, Alejandro, like, I'll let you say. Yeah, no, thank you as well. I mean, this was. Um, well, thank you again to everybody in the audience uh, for staying with us. And we hope to see you in other uh, panels and have, uh, have an opportunity to continue these conversations to spread the word of longevity. Um, have a great afternoon and a great summer and uh, see you all soon. Thank you again.